0: This is the Wildflower Half Hour. This is a podcast all about wildflowers. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday night between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. People share photos of the wild plants they have found in bloom that week in Britain and Ireland, and we flood the internet with flowers. I'm Isabel Hardman, and in this latest episode, we'll be getting to know wild orchids better, discovering some more of your favourite flowers, and going on another one of those wild flower walks with Leif Sweden. First up, I've loved hearing from so many of you about the wild flowers that you particularly love, and please do keep your clips coming. Here are some more favourite plants.
1: I am Joshua Ajoele, and my Twitter handle is at that is J A J O W E H E. So I'm a PhD student at the University of Wyoming, and so I'll be talking about primula veris, known as cowslip, and they have basal um, rosette of leaves, which um, contracted. The leaf is contracted towards the base, of finely pubescent. And, um, the flowers are in Scapul's ombel and the sepals are green, while the petals are usually yellow. And then the petal, the base of the petal has some orange spots. And I think this is one of the reasons I'm picking it because it's quite colorful. I think photogenic, I find it quite photogenic. So yeah. There goes the reason for picking primula varies. But I also think um but one other thing to note is that um they have heterostyle, they could display heterostyle, and this is the condition where they have more than one positional arrangement for the hunters and the stigma. So you have the condition like where you have the flowers, the pin and thumb flowers. And so in the pin flower you have the stigma to be the same length. The style rather to be the same length as the corolla tube, and also the anter is attached to the walls of the corolla tube about halfway down. And also, we have the thrum where you have the corolla and the anter at the mouth of the corolla tube, and the styles just about halfway the length of the corolla tube. And so I think this condition is quite um, fascinating and exciting. I'm Frank Gardner and I think
2: probably one of my favourite wildflowers is the primrose. Why? Because when I was growing up as a lad in Hampshire, they used to grow in the woods and they're a sign of very ancient woodland in Britain and Ireland. And there'd be this fantastic explosion of yellow colour in amongst the kind of rain-sodden woods and they would proliferate. A lot of the woods in the part of Hampshire, northeast Hampshire, where I grew up, were so steep, they were known as hangers, because the trees literally hung on to the side of the steep slope. And they would be dotted in spring from pretty much from January through April, even as late as May, with these just wonderful beacons of yellow light. And they grew in bigger and bigger clusters every year. My grandmother loved them. Apparently, Queen Victoria, who When she was born, Queen Victoria was still alive. Um, My grandmother loved them, and Queen Victoria used to give them to her Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, because he liked them too.
3: Hello, my name is Moira, and those of you who take part in Wild Flower Hour on Twitter will know me as Nervous Botanist. One of my very favourite flowers is the Harebell, Campanula rotundifolia, which is also known in Scotland as the Scottish Bluebell. As a young girl growing up in Scotland, it was one of the first wildflowers I was able to recognise and name, and I was captivated by its gorgeous blue colour and delicate stems and flowers. Sadly, this once common native wildflower of grassy places is now classified as near-threatened in England. My first encounters with harebells were on visits to stay with my grandparents, who lived in Rutherglen on the south side of Glasgow we used to go for family walks to a nearby country park called Cathkin Braes where harebells grew on the slopes and danced in the wind and just as a little aside when i mentioned cathkin braes on twitter recently i discovered that louise marsh the botanical society of britain and ireland's communications officer knows cathkin braes very well as her family lives in that area as we got reminiscing we amazingly realised that we had more than just visits to Cathkin Bray's in common, as a bicycle shop in Rutherglen, which Louise and her cousins used to visit in their youth, was in all probability the shop owned by my grandfather, but anyway, back to Harebells. Although they are very beautiful, in folklore they have a strong link with evil. They are known in some parts of Scotland as All Man's Bells, or Dead Man's Bells, with the All Man being the devil himself, and woe betide anyone that picks them. Fairies and witches are also strongly associated with harebells. A patch of harebells is said to be a favourite home for fairies who will cast their spells on anyone who walks through. One legend I found tells of three fairies who after being wounded in a battle with pixies were rescued by a hare. The fairy queen rewarded the hare by planting a meadow with harebells which would warn the animal of approaching foxes. Witches were said to use the milky sap of harebells to transform themselves into hares in order to go about their evil deeds unseen. William Shakespeare often mentions flowers in his works, and the azured harebell features in his play Cymbeline, which is set in Britain some time before the Roman conquest. In the Catholic Church, the harebell is the flower dedicated to St Dominic, the founder of the Dominican Order. As my father-in-law, husband, and eldest son are all called Dominic, this is another link I have to the Harebell. I leave you with the song of the Harebell Fairy by Cicely Mary Barker, who was from Croydon, where I now live. O bells on stems so thin and fine, no human ear your sound can hear, O lightly chiming bells of mine. When dim and dewy twilight falls, then comes the time when harebells chime, for fairy feasts and fairy balls. They tinkle while the fairies play with dance and song the whole night long, till daybreak wakens, cold and grey, and elfin music fades away. Well, what a
0: lovely selection that was, and we're particularly grateful to Moira, who does a huge amount of work helping Wildflower Hour members identify mystery plants. If you've come across a flower you don't know, do post it on Twitter or Instagram using the wildflowerid hashtag or post in our Facebook group and Moira or another friendly botanist will pop up and tell you what it is and how to identify it. You can even start identifying plants now, long before they are due to flower. One family that holds a great deal of magical power over botanists is the orchid family. And with around 50 species of orchids growing wild in this country, there are plenty of weird and wonderful plants to find. Mike Waller is one of the authors of a new book on these plants called Britain's Orchids. It's a fantastic guide that takes you through the flowers, the habitats and the hybrids of these fascinating plants. And as he explained to me, you can start identifying them right now. Mike, your orchids book is fantastic and it does a lot of things that than other wildflower books don't just tell me a little bit about how you put it together and some of the research that you got to do on it traveling around the country looking at lots of lovely plants
4: Yeah, it's very kind of you to say it's it's such a good book. We're we're very pleased with it. It took quite a long time to to get there, a few years in the making. But um, yeah, there were kind of a few new elements in the book, particularly the sort of the hybrids and the the rosettes elements, the vegetative parts of the book, which meant that we had to do quite a bit of travelling and go to some slightly different places to get images and do a bit of research. So, yeah, I think one of the, the more interesting ones was we did a trip last year out to County Donegal, a part of Ireland that hasn't really been explored very much. So we were particularly excited to go to a new site for dense flowered orchid, which is this tiny little specialist of the limestone grasslands out in Ireland. It's a Mediterranean thing. Um, but for some reason, it occurs in Ireland, growing alongside Arctic Alpine mountain avens and this sort of stuff. But most people go to the Burren, so we were really excited to go to this new site uh, up in Northern Ireland. And we'd heard about two days before we got there that it was the best flowering that they'd had in the ten years of monitoring. So we were like, "Oh my God, this is this is exciting!" Oh, and, yeah no it was brilliant because again for people who've been to the borough and usually this orchid is you know you maybe see like five on a good day spread across the limestone pavement but this was like over a hundred so we're very excited but it was on private land so we're like oh, how are we going to get up there so we got to the bottom of this farmer's drive and um We were sort of hanging around for a while. And this guy turned up and was like, oh, you know, can I help you? We're like, yeah, we're really after orchids. There's some up on the hill there. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'll have to phone my brother. So he phoned his brother. His brother arrived and said, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll take you up. Just follow the tractor. So we followed the tractor all the way up this slope, right to the head of the valley, this beautiful limestone escarpment. And he said, yeah, this is just one of my favorite places to come and sit. But yeah, the orchids are just up there. And so we sort of climbed up this little track and we got to the top and it was a sea of early purple orchids for a start, which is impressive. These big purple spikes. How wonderful. (laughs) Stunning. And then as we looked closer, we started to see these tiny little dense flowered orchids just dotted amongst the grass. And honestly, it was such a great day. So exciting. And to go somewhere that's, you know, hasn't, it felt like... It's a little bit like The Lost World because it was so high up and it was like this little table mountain where people haven't been before. So that was the one that really sort of stuck in our minds. But yeah, we've been around Scotland sort of hunting out some of the more difficult marsh orchids, particularly Pugsley's marsh orchid, which seems to love growing in these uh, mountain flushes right up on the tops of mountains. So again, some similar experiences there. But yeah, it's taken us all over the place. It's been an absolutely fantastic experience. And um, yeah, I think we're sort of pleased with the result. I hope everyone enjoys it as much as we enjoyed writing it.
0: Well, it really is great, but one of its downsides is that a lot of people will be looking at it and thinking, well, there's no orchids out yet and I just can't wait for the season to start. Or even when they're looking at it thinking, well, will I actually get to see orchids this year, given the Covid restrictions that we're still under? So one of the things that I found really useful about the book is it doesn't just look at the flowers, it also looks at the leaves.
4: Exactly. Yes. So this was a major sort of thing that we, we wanted to include. And I, I guess it started for me when I was at the Natural History Museum and I was doing a traineeship there. And one of the, the final year projects I decided to work on was developing a free guide for identifying orchids when they're in leaf, a vegetative guide. And so that involved a bit of research and I started to realise that actually orchids look very different when they're in leaf that you can actually identify them but not only that they certain species appear at different times throughout the year so just like flowering they flower at different times the leaves appear at different times so there's a whole suite of orchids particularly the the warm loving mediterranean species that appear above ground in september october and they actually sit there Throughout the whole winter, just ticking over, photosynthesizing a little bit, preparing to flower. So the really common one which people will be familiar with is like the bee orchid, but you also get really big, impressive rare ones like the lizard orchid. And right now we've even got early purple lady orchids starting to appear as well. So you can get out and see orchids even amongst the ice and snow. And as we're speaking today, it's I don't know, about minus three outside here in Exeter. It's the coldest temperature for over 10 years in Scotland last night, but the orchids are still out, they're still there amongst the snow, just ticking over. So if you get out locally, it would be great to just check your road verges, local parks, and actually some orchids are potentially more visible in this state when they're in leaf than when they're in flower. As I say, bee orchids are a great example of that.
0: Just what sort of size are some of these rosettes? I think people are often quite surprised when they go looking for orchids, Mm by how small the flowers are I mean coral root orchid for instance I had expected a small plant but when I finally found one I was amazed by how tiny it was is that the same with the rosettes?
4: Yeah I mean there's there is they are very variable in size actually but so say a bee orchid this one probably again people most familiar with it's perhaps I don't know 15 centimeters across from one side to the other but then a lizard orchid is probably our biggest I mean, they can be, I don't know, 25, 30 centimetres across, almost cabbage-like, I think we've said in the book. That was my own term. I don't know whether that's accurate. But then you've got something like the burnt orchid, and they really are tiny. I mean, it's a tiny plant anyway, but that might only be, say, five centimetres across, tiny little thing nestled in the grass, but they, as I say, they are more visible when the grasses have died down in the midwinter. They're actually sort of more visible, but the, the shapes are quite different as well. So, so, I mean, some will have quite broad leaves, but then, say, the pyramidal orchid, quite long, thin, strap-shaped leaves, almost grass-like and Irish ladies' tresses too, almost impossible to spot in the grass because they just completely blend into the background. So actually being able to find some of them can be quite difficult just simply because of their shape.
0: Another quite difficult thing that I found when I first started looking for bee orchid rosettes was I kept getting them confused with other plants, particularly plantains. Can you give us some tips on how to differentiate between the two?
4: Yeah. Okay. So bee orchid is it's quite distinctive initially. So if, if you see a bee orchid from afar, the colour is quite distinctive. So they're quite sort of a bluey, greyish green colour initially. You've got about three or four leaves they're nice and smooth and there's no hairs on them so that will immediately sort of differentiates them from the plantains so the plantains will have many more leaves uh, sort of got much thicker veins quite a corrugated appearance and if you look on the undersides and sometimes on the top you'll get quite long hairs as well then you've got something like common century can be a bit of a, a bit of a doppelganger as well but you want to look at the, the the arrangement of the leaves so if it's a, a dicot, that's a plant with with pairs of leaves, the leaves should sit roughly opposite where, of course, orchids are monocots along with the grasses and the lilies and all those. The leaves don't sit opposite to one another. They go one after another in an alternate fashion. So they have quite a different sort of structure. I think over time you start to sort of pick up on those subtle differences. But yeah, initially they, they can be quite confusing to separate.
0: And what other tips would you give for people orchid hunting this year? Maybe not just rosettes, but, but as the season starts up and the flowers start to open, have you got any any tips for, for where to look, places that might surprise
3: people?
4: Yeah, I mean, as I say, I think areas that um, people have traditionally not really looked for orchids have been sort of urban environments, just near housing, road verges, can be a real surprise actually a real surprise and a really good example of that is the recent discovery of long-lipped tong orchid down in kent the location of which is being withheld so don't go looking for it and it's near a motorway <laughs> but you know things can pop up in really unusual locations and as i say the urban environment is a great place to start looking uh, in recent times there's been the discovery of lizard orchid Um, on a mean sea grassland just on central reservations. Uh, In Reading, there's been one found in Bromley. Be orchids too. I've seen photos this year of absolutely hundreds of them being found in new locations. Interesting to see how this cold weather affects them being warmth-loving species. You can also get things like autumn ladies' tresses in really nice bits of short lawn. Again, new sites have been found for those right on people's lawns and near their gardens. So, you know, it's good to just look locally. Honestly, you'll find all sorts of new stuff, even orchids that you wouldn't expect.
0: And let's just talk about these tongue orchids that have turned up in, mm. in Kent. Are they native to the UK? Oh,
4: native. That is a that's a, a, loaded tricky term, word. a tricky <laughs> word. But in the botanical world that, that really does make people's hackles go up. <laughs> is it native? Well, this is the thing. They could be they could be native. So the tongue orchids are principally a Mediterranean species. They like it nice and warm, hot and dry. And the greater tongue orchid, so this is one that was found, I think, three or four years ago. It's the one that we spoke about last time in the last podcast. That one appeared on a bit of rough ground in Essex. And there's no indication that it was planted. It's an odd location. It's not near any paths in the middle of this bit of rough field. And it's obviously been... Uh, vegetating for a while so it's been sort of uh, one of the things that orchids some species of orchids can do is they can um, split off into new plants and create clones so it's like a clonal growth. it's clearly been there for a little while as well so that that could well be a native one it could be windblown seed or possibly it was imported with strawberry plants you know we just don't know but this new one in Kent slightly different species the long-lipped tongue orchid. That one's growing alongside of a motorway. Now, the interesting thing with this is it's near the Channel Tunnel. We think it's near the Channel Tunnel. I don't know for sure. This is, this is completely me <laughs> inferring what was said in the BSBI article. <laughs> completely speculative. But some of the theories are that perhaps the seed were, arrived on lorries that have been traveling through Europe and then uh, the seed had fallen onto the ground and because this, this orchid is at the bottom of a slope, the runoff from the motorway has run the seed down to the bottom of the slope and it's just sprung up spontaneously. So it's an interesting one because is, does that class as native if it's assisted by people? Or if it's got here of its own accord, could it be windblown seed? I mean, the nearest populations are hundreds of miles away. They're not even, it's not like they're in northern France even. So I think it's just fascinating sort of speculating how these things got here. But however they got here, they're here, they're here. and they're amazing.
0: Yeah. Amazing. And let's just talk finally about the tongue kids that we discussed on the previous series of the podcast, uh, which are under threat, as I understand it. Explain what's going on there.
4: Yeah, so these greater tongue orchids, um, they were originally found by an ecologist who's doing a survey, Who he posted the pictures on Facebook, asking what they were, the classic situation, everyone starts to get very excited, he then pulls the post, <laughs> of course, realising that he's attracted far too much attention. Anyway, it transpires after a lot of looking and searching that they're in this, this nice bit of rough grassland on the edge of Tiptree in Essex. And this site is up for development. It's uh, a planning application has recently gone in and it's been open for comments and objections. And at the moment, we're sort of waiting to see what will happen, but it looks as though in the current plans, the site will be largely destroyed, which is very sad because it's not just the Greater tongue Orchids that are there. And I should stress this is the only site in the whole country for Greater Tongue Orchid. There's also green orchids, bee orchids, a few common spotted as well, I believe. And this particular field will be destroyed. I, I should add that they're planning on um, translocating them to a different meadow, but the success rate of that is often quite low. So I would say that if it does go ahead, then we will lose the site very sadly. Um, and yeah, the, the, the Tongue Orchid will be lost however it got there the tongue orchid will be lost in Britain for a little while, which is a shame, which is a real shame, because um, it's a beautiful thing.
0: And so the developer is is not interested in any sort of remedial work beyond the translocation, which you've said is very tricky, particularly with orchids, given the, the fungal relationships they have uh, below the surface.
4: Yeah, exactly. Um, there is There are some remedial actions being put in place, the sort of creation of a small wildflower-rich area, But again, it's it's difficult with this stuff because you know who's watching to ensure that that gets monitored correctly and that that is a wildflower-rich area and and how can that be you know a a compensation for the loss of such a large area Um, and yeah as you say translocation doesn't tend to work too well with orchids because they have they're sort of connected to a huge underground network of hyphae of mycorrhizal fungus and if you cut that off then it does limit their ability to to survive and so if you start cutting up that that layer then yeah moving it somewhere else then they probably wouldn't survive so I think the plan at the moment is yeah they, they do some sort of wildflower seeding in a smaller area and maybe just sort of put the orchids there but um so it's 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 sad in a, in a way, but it remains to be seen. It's possible that the site will be saved. And of course, it, it's it's adjacent to an existing wildlife site as well, which is a beautifully rich habitat full of old disused pits and you know huge wildlife value. So it would make an absolutely fantastic nature reserve in reality uh, with excellent access for all the locals. And of course, these tongue orchids are just a sort of cherry on top, the crowning glory of the site.
0: Let's hope that more and more people get it into the wildflowers in that area and that it is safeguarded for the future. Thanks so much, Mike. You've made us all even more excited about orchid season. And as it happens, this week's challenge for Wildflower Hour is to find plant rosettes. Just upload your pictures adding hashtag rosette challenge this Sunday, the 14th of March, and then keep an eye on our social media for details of the challenge for the following Sunday. Now, if you still can't get out very far because of lockdown, have you had a look at your own back lawn? Our society can be rather funny about lawns, obsessing over smooth and boring green expanses to the extent that any other plants don't get a look in. But what a waste that is when your lawn could play host to hundreds of beautiful, tiny wildflowers. Here, Wildflower Hour member Louise tells
5: us about what happened when she decided to let her lawn grow. We mowed our lawn for the last time at the beginning of March when we were sprucing up our home and garden for the photographs we knew the estate agent would take as our house went on the market. We didn't know it back then but that would be the last time we mowed our lawn for the foreseeable future or in fact for as long as we live at this property. Not long after those photos were taken a bumblebee nest established in our kitchen roof and I was soon loath to do anything to our garden that might detract from the wildlife. I became so keen to do all we could to feed the insects and to maintain our bumblebee nest and to help it to thrive. It's become a decision that I absolutely treasure, and I think I'd be loath to ever mow a lawn again. Since then, our garden has shot up. We've now one or two feet in places of long grasses, all different kinds. We've got daisies and buttercups, ragwort, aquilegia, nettles, dock leaves, and other plants that I just can't name. It's not just for the bees, though, because there are so many other different insects that maintain our garden and help it to pollinate. There are the birds that come and feed on those insects as well. We know of at least three or four established bird's nests in the gardens next to and behind ours. There's a wren and blackbirds, sparrows, a sparrows nest in our roof as well. And all of a sudden our garden has become so much more than a vanity project, but it's become part of a vital lifeline for our wildlife. It's become a place that I enjoy spending so much time because I'm sharing it with the wildlife. Our dog might get lost in the uh, nettles at the bottom of the garden every now and again but that's nothing compared to seeing a family of bees hovering above all of the plants to get the nectar that they can and knowing that they're resowing somewhere else. Our vegetable patch we had last year is randomly sprouting in places as well as the seeds have carried on the wind. It's not just a garden anymore it's a habitat and I'm so proud of it and I don't think I will ever mow again.
0: Thank you Louise and do get in touch with us if you've done something similar with your lawn we'd love to do a roundup of pictures and stories. And now finally, it's time for another wildflower walk with Leif Bursueden.
6: Hello everyone. Welcome to take two of Leif's botanical adventures. Now it's early March and in case you hadn't realized, we're still in lockdown. (laughs) Um, So I'm gonna take you on another local walk today and hopefully find some early signs of spring. I'm off on one of my favourite walks. Uh, it's a circuit that I find myself going back to again and again and again and it's usually after a long day at my desk when I just need to stretch my legs and remind myself that life isn't actually all about my computer screen. Uh, I really love this one. takes in the river, some damp willow woodland, and then sort of heads back across the fields to home. But it starts out walking along the streets. Now, it might surprise you to learn that at this time of year, at the moment, this is actually one of the most exciting places to go plant hunting. There is so much to see on your doorstep, literally growing from cracks in the pavement, or like the top of walls, Or even on the windowsill in the driveway. There are loads and loads of cool plants all around if you take the time to stop and notice them. So I'm walking along a little street and I have this low stone wall on my left uh, which is just outside a pub car park and it is covered in moss. All sorts of different species. Uh, There are some, some wall screw moss There are grey cushioned grimias, which are really cool. Um, Then you've got like mats of shiny golden yellow silky wall feather moss. And over here, there's a very distinctive one called um, capillary thread moss. And this one is particularly striking uh, and easy to recognize because it's reproductive structures, which are called sporophytes. Uh, look like miniature red and green snowdrops. They're absolutely fantastic. Only a few centimetres tall, but it turns an ordinary wall like this into a whole other world when you crouch down at eye level. These mossy walls are so important in in urban environments because the mosses actually help to clean the air and remove pollutants produced by cars. They're like little green lungs, if you like, <laughs> capturing um, the, like harmful particles in the air and the pollutants uh, and helping to keep the air clean and, t- clean and healthy. Uh, and then the microbes associated with the moss that sort of grow with it in the sort of humus which builds up on the wall underneath them. They basically like feed on, on those particles and yeah, remove them from the atmosphere. So they play this really, really useful role. Um, so mossy walls are definitely a good thing. Mosses, of course, also really, really good at capturing carbon dioxide. Uh, they have really large surface areas. So they're really good at that. And we go on and on and on about planting trees, but it is not always the best option. In certain situations, uh, like pub car parts, for example, <laughs> Moss is much, much better at sequestering carbon than trees are. And so, (laughs) next time you're down the pub and everyone's wanging on about how they should be planting trees, just make sure you get a voice in for mosses uh, because they're the real unsung heroes here. But, mosses aren't the only thing growing on this wall. The real highlight for me, at least, from what I've found so far, um, is common Whitlow grass which is currently springing up from pavement cracks and walls all over the place. It's a small plant, maybe five centimeters tall, with a basal rosette of leaves and tiny white flowers. Each one has four deeply notched petals that look like pairs of rabbit ears (laughs) when you look closely. Then they have these six delicate lemon yellow stamens in the middle when the sun's out, they open their flowers really wide, uh, waiting for little flies to come along and pollinate them. This wall has lots of it growing between the mosses. They're so beautiful close up, and they grow literally in the middle of towns and cities, which is just so cool. There is so much beauty to be found on the smallest of scales, just right outside our homes. Even in the most urban places, you can still find nature just sort of hiding in plain sight. There's something really wonderful about that. Okay, so I spent way too long (laughs) looking at that wall, uh, which means I actually don't have that much time left. So I was going to talk to you about various other plants down here. uh, But I've arrived at the river and I'm going to have to pick one. So I'm going to go for the most colourful. Um, it's an early spring classic, it's called Coltsfoot and I've just reached a little mini sort of bay thing by the river and there's a little population of it just over here growing from this scrappy muddy bit of riverbank. These plants are feisty things and will quite happily grow in the more rundown grubby waste places often single-handedly adding splashes of warm yellows to places that otherwise are fairly unimpressive to be honest. Um, Although this is quite a nice setting for it. The river's sort of winding away in the background um, with a really smooth surface. Now coltsfoot is quite a weird one. Right now it's all flowering stems and no leaves but in a few weeks time it'll be all leaves and no stem, no flowers. Um, And it has these thick scaly grayish stems and then later in the summer its leaves um, pop up and they kind of look a bit like mini rhubarb leaves. Uh, They're sort of horseshoe shaped uh, which is actually where the name Coltsfoot comes from. Now as you might imagine this kind of plant has all sorts of interesting local names and I've written down a few uh, names to share with you so let me just grab my notebook. Uh, Okay, there's foal's foot and ass's foot, clatter clogs and horse hoof. Uh, In parts of Scotland it was once known as Dove Dock and my my favourite, Tushy Lucky Gowan. Uh, In Cumbria it was Sun afore the Father, uh, which refers to the fact that the flowers appear before the leaves. Uh, In Somerset it's been known as wild rhubarb, yellow trumpets and yellow stars. Uh, Colts leaves were also smoked uh, as a tobacco substitute once upon a time uh, earning it names like Backey Plant and Poor Man's Backey. I really really love reading about local names like this because it tells you so much about the place these plants occupy in our culture how people have used them in the past, lived alongside them and I guess interacted with the world They haven't just let them blend into the background like we do so often today. These names are really magical. Right, I am going to continue with my walk and enjoy the last of the afternoon sun. I hope you can get out and find some whitlow grass, some mosses, some coltsfoot in your local areas. They are fantastic plants
0: with so many interesting stories to tell. Thanks so much, Leif. And that's all for this episode. We'll be back in a fortnight. Happy wildflower hunting and see you on Sundays between 8 and 9 pm for another Wildflower Hour.